Hey, welcome to the C3 Victory Podcast. We're praying this message encourages you, grows your faith, and builds your relationship with Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I feel like I've got such a message this morning on this Palm Sunday. Who's familiar with the term Palm Sunday? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's not bad. Very good. Uh, My childhood experience of Palm Sunday, uh, as I have said to you before, I grew up in the Anglican Church, went to the Catholic school, so was, was embedded into the, the Christian calendar, if you will. And so on Palm Sunday, uh, we, did, we did this joint, uh, a, a joint thing, I'm going to call it a thing, I don't know, well, a march, it was a joint march, right? And we would, we would all file out, so in Port Macquarie, the churches were, were next to each other, the Anglican Church and the, and the Catholic Church. And so we would file out of church at a prearranged time, meet in the street, like together we would walk around like kind of the block, and then and then uh, and there'd be people up the front with the, the big golden crosses, and we'd all be waving palm leaves and, and all of those things. And I was I was learned in the art of palm leaf origami. Anyone else? Anyone else can make a cross out of a little uh, a shred of palm leaf? We all had those pinned to our our, 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 our shirts and things, you know, we were representing the palms on Palm Sunday. But one of my most traumatic experiences in church life occurred on Palm Sunday. Uh, we, were, we were doing the march, and somehow I got separated from my parents, and in the process of that separation, I also managed to end up in the wrong line. And, and, and I ended up in the line that was filing back into the Catholic Church, rather than the Anglican church. And I was, I was sort of too young and insecure to sort of, to, to like, you know, make a scene. So I just kind of went along with things. And before I knew it, I was walking in the doors of the Catholic church. And I was, I was like, I went to the Catholic school, so I knew a few people, but I was freaking out. Because I'm like, I, I, I've never actually been here on a Sunday. I don't know what happens. And before I knew it, I was seated. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. This is like, it was so traumatic for me. I've never forgotten it. Anyway, eventually I, I sort of, I found one of my teachers and they helped me exit the building without making too much of a scene. I kind of ran across the road. I'm like, oh, back in the Anglican church. Whew. I was, uh, dodged it, dodged it. But um, I just remember that. That to me was Palm Sunday, right? That to me was Palm Sunday. Uh, it was the march. It was all about the march. I never really understood the, the link between us marching around the city and kind of representing the story of Palm Sunday in Scripture. And so I think for maybe for many of us, we're, we're aware that there's this Sunday, it's called Palm Sunday, it's the Sunday before Easter. If you aren't aware, we are, we are one Sunday away from Easter Sunday, and, and we're about to go into what, what is called Passion Week. It is the week where the very passionate love of Jesus Christ for us was put on full display. And, 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 and I can't wait. Good Friday, if you can make it to our Good Friday service, I want to encourage you, be there. It's at our ministry center. It's going to be an incredibly powerful time where we, we sit and we reflect on, on the cross and what Jesus actually did for us on the cross. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to, we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate uh, the resurrection. Amen. But, but Palm Sunday is, is really in Scripture, it's not titled Palm Sunday. I don't know if you realize that. It's, it's, it's mostly titled uh, the triumphant entry. It's where, it's where Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and, and really is celebrated as though he is the king. 
I want to read it to you in two different uh, uh, scriptures this morning, if that's okay. Uh, John 12, 12. John 12, 12. And then we're going we're gonna to go to Luke 19. So if, you, if, you, uh, if you've got the analog Bible with its flickability, which is my personal preference, uh, you can flick between the two and you can put your fingers in. It's very difficult to do that on a digital Bible. Um, but John 12, 12 says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. A bit of, a bit of context, the, the festival that it's talking about is the Passover. Um, the, the nation of Israel had uh, four major festivals throughout the year, which had all sorts of requirements around it. But this one in particular, it was the one that everybody, if they could, came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's the, the memorial of what God did for them coming out of slavery in Egypt, and they would celebrate that thing every year. And this was, this was that time. It was, it was entering into that week where they were going to celebrate. And so there were, there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem anyway. Okay, But by this stage, throughout the, the region, obviously the name of Jesus of Nazareth, what he was doing, his miracles, his ministry, his message, was all spreading. And so people knew of him and they'd heard of him and there was, there was a, a, a kind of like a simmering or like a hushed kind of like, is he, could he be, you know, all of that sort of language. And so, and so we're seeing this, this slow-moving kind of building of anticipation, both in the Israeli kind of calendar, the Jewish calendar, but also in what Jesus is doing. It says, the next, the next day the crowd heard that Jesus came for the festival. Blah, 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 blah. Next verse. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's a very critical uh, declaration because right now Israel actually has a king. Uh, it's King Herod. Okay, and so, and so by declaring that Jesus is king of Israel, there's actually some serious political stuff going on that we've got to understand, that they should not be declaring that he is king when Herod is king. Okay, this is, this is adding to the, the uh, tension within the city, within the hierarchy of the nation of Israel, between the king and the high priest, um, and all of the, the leadership structure of the nation of Israel, that by, by the crowd declaring, hey, Jesus, you're the king, it's, it's, it's really adding to this kind of like, whoa, there's a, there's a, there's a tension building. What was that up to? What's, what scripture? Here we go. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written. Uh, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand. I love, I love how often in Scripture it says the disciples didn't get it. It gives me like so much joy that I'm not the only one. That the people that actually walked with Jesus, they didn't get it either a lot of the time. Uh, they didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. It says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word, and many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. That's a really critical point, point of context, okay? Let's not read this little passage out of context. This has been, uh, this, this follows on directly from John 11. I know, John 11 came before John 12. That's like mind-blowing. But, but the, what is recorded in John 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And, and what you have to understand is that 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 miracle was the, the pinnacle catalyst 
and caused not just, not just the Jewish leaders to continue to be infuriated with what Jesus did, but it was at that moment that they entered into a plot to kill Jesus. And so you have these two conflicting, uh, elevating understandings and desires and all of these things around Jesus. You have those that were uh, slowly getting more and more convinced that he is what is called the promised Messiah of the nation of Israel and those that were more and more convinced that he wasn't and therefore needed to be killed according to Jewish law. And you can see as you journey through the Gospels, this conflict is going to come to a head somewhere. Like You cannot have these two opposing viewpoints on this one person just just keep kind of going off into... The, no, no, no. They, they were on a trajectory of a collision that was not going to be avoided. And this collision just happens to occur at the same point as the biggest festival in the entire Jewish calendar. And that's where we get to this week, which is, which is awesome. But John... John is, he's kind of the, the poet, if you will, right? Like he's the creative. When you read John's gospel, he's the one that, that, that brings in all of the, the creative visual language. I love John. I think if, if John was a teacher, he'd be a visual teacher. He would teach in pictures and imagery and all those sorts of things. And, and I really appreciate that we get this one account of the entry into Jerusalem in all four gospels. All four Gospels record this moment in, in the ministry of Jesus, and they all add a, a tiny little bit of detail each. So, you know, you, there's some homework this week. Go away and read it in each four. Um, but they all add something different. But Luke, Luke we know. Maybe we, we're, we're not sure. Here's his son for you. Luke was actually a doctor. Um, and so where John is kind of the, the poetic, visual, emotive, you know, I, I, when I think of John, I think of Pastor Darren, right? He's got all, all the emotion and the feels, and me, 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 me and Pastor Darren, we relate on that a lot. We, but Luke is like, he's like the details person, right? He would be like Pastor Karen. All, all of the details in alignment, everything is right, every I dotted, every T crossed. Um, that's why the Victory Center is going from strength to strength. Um, but... But Luke records some really critical detail, where John just kind of is all about like, oh, he's the king, and he's entering, and it's amazing, and there's palm leaves. Luke gives us a lot more detail. So I wanted to also give you Luke this morning. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Beth, that place, um, and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, uh, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who sent, went, were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. There's so many situations in life where I'm like, I just, I wish I could apply this and see what happens. You know, like... Uh, walking down the street, there's someone's really nice car, just jump in. What are you doing? The Lord needs it. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to fly, right? Like, I don't, like yeah, you walk down the street, there's like that house that everyone like, oh, I love that house, amazing house. Just, just go and walk in the front door. What are you doing? The Lord needs it. <laughs> like so many, so many things go through my head when I read that, that scripture. Um, but then, you know, I, re I relate it then into my, my serious life. And I'm like, what? My serious life, yeah, yeah. What is God challenging in me? Then my response should simply be, well, uh, well the Lord needs it. My time, my finance, you know, uh, my gifts. Um, 
I won't preach that right now. But, but it says they brought it to Jesus. It's a good place to bring anything, really, actually. Uh, and they threw their cloaks on the colt. They put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Interesting statement. Really interesting statement. Because they did not praise Jesus necessarily for who they realized he was but they praised Jesus for all the miracles they had seen him do. And this is really, really important. We're going to dig into this a little bit more as we unpack this message, but there is a really big difference between what the crowd celebrated about Jesus and what the disciples learned about who he was. And that's a huge issue in our relationship with him because we can trust who he is if we know who he is, even when things don't go to plan. But if all we celebrate is what he does, what happens when he doesn't? And this is exactly what we see play out in the next week of the life of Jesus, is that those who celebrated the miracles they had seen had a certain expectation of what he was going to do and what he was going to keep doing and what he was going to become and what that was going to look like in their life. And when that didn't work out, they had no place to put that disappointment. They had no place to put that difference in expectation. And they went from celebrating and they went from shouting that he is the king of kings to still shouting, but then they were shouting, crucify him. And I started to ask myself a question preparing this message. How do you go from celebrating him as the king to calling for his crucifixion in a very short space of time? And I... I began to realize that, that a faulty framework creates incorrect perceptions which lead to dangerous expectations. You see, the crowd, the nation of Israel that had been caught up in what Jesus was doing, had a faulty framework for the Messiah. Their framework was built on generational, historical understanding of what the Messiah or the chosen man of God was going to do for them under the umbrella of freedom. This is because throughout their history, God had continued to raise up a military leader, whether we are talking all of the judges, whether we are talking then the kings. It, 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 it doesn't matter what we focus on. Their entire history teaches them when God sends someone, they lead us in battle over the person who is, is, is oppressing us and we win and that's how we get our freedom. And so all through the Israelite historical teachings, all through what we call the Old Testament, there is this prophecy that this one like the Son of Man, this Messiah, this chosen man of God, he's going to come and he's going to bring freedom and he's going to set you free and he's going to do all of these things. But their generational historical framework told them it's going to look like a military crusade. So he is going to come in and he is physically going to fight 
the Romans and he is going to overthrow them because they're the ones currently oppressing us and they've been oppressing us for hundreds of years. And, and even though God hasn't spoken for hundreds of years, we know this is how he works. He always sends a military person to, to, to lead us into battle and then we win the battle and we get our freedom. And so this is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And this person, he's been doing all these miracles. He looks like he's going to be the one. So our expectation is that if he is the one, he's going to take the fight to the Romans. And what we don't understand is that all of us have historical, generational frameworks in our belief system. All of us have been raised in a family context. Scripture is actually really clear about the influence generation on generation, both positive and negative, in terms of our, our mental framework and how we perceive even the things of God. And if we don't allow ourselves to consider that we might have faulty framework, then we will take our faulty framework and we will allow it to create incorrect perceptions and it will lead us to dangerous expectations. You see, you see this crowd with these faulty frameworks perceived everything through the lens of we're about to get our physical freedom. We are about to physically overthrow Rome. We're about, to, we're, we're, we're about to rule right now again like we did back in the promised land. We're going to be the most powerful military force and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to cast these, these, these Romans out of our land. We're going to get our land back and we're going to reestablish our identity and all of these things that were wrapped up in the promises of the nation of Israel and the way they perceived those promises was because of their framework. And unfortunately, it led to really dangerous expectations because those expectations they had on Jesus, he had no intention of fulfilling the way they expected. And sometimes, in and of ourselves, for, frame, for faulty frameworks, we might even realize that we have. We perceive certain things, and then we expect God to come through in our lives in certain ways. And when he doesn't, it leaves us in a really dangerous place. You see, the crowd, they were, they were so ready to crown him king. Like, like you get the sense, if you, if you read into this scripture, you get the sense, like this is a multitude that are, that are taking over the sound of Jerusalem with their declaration that Jesus is king. And you almost get the idea that, that whether Jesus wanted to go to the palace and actually be crowned, like, like he, it's like this crowd was almost going to do it for him. Like they were going to take him straight to Herod's palace and they were going to expect him to, to kind of go one-on-one like, like, you know, uh, hook against Peter Pan. You know, I don't know why that came to mind, but that, 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 that's what I saw right then. And they were expecting him to beat Herod, take the throne, claim kingship over the nation of Israel, and then go to town and throw out the Romans. Like that's seriously what they were actually expecting was about to happen. They, they, they knew what they were saying when they were declaring him king. They knew what they were doing when they were laying their, their robes over the donkey, 
They knew what they were doing when they were laying their robes so that not even the donkey's feet would touch the dust of the roads of Jerusalem. I mean, you don't do that just for anybody. They knew what they were doing as they're laying down palm leaves and creating an entrance that only a triumphant king coming back from battle would have received coming into the city, right? They knew what they were doing. And it was in direct contrast and conflict to the current setup that existed. So you can imagine, perhaps, why the high priest and King Herod were like, yeah, we probably need to get rid of this guy. Because he, he, at this point, he's not, it's not even necessarily a big deal for the Romans right now. It's a huge deal for the hierarchy of the nation of Israel. Because they're really only there because they willed and dealed their way in. Like by that stage, the, the high positions of, of the nation of Israel, King Herod, the high priest, that was all wheeled and dealed within the courts with the Romans to make sure that the ones that were, were probably most going to keep the peace got the highest positions. Because Rome's whole thing was keep the peace. So, so they gave, when they took over Israel, they gave the kingship to King Herod because they believed that him and his family were most in place to ensure their partnership with, with the high priest. Like that, that little combination there, well, that's, that's, that's going to work for us and that's best going to keep the peace. There was no anointing from God on that, that positioning. Not like Saul, not like David. And here we have King Jesus where the people are like, we see the anointing of God on this man to be king. We're ready to declare he's king, not Herod. We're ready to follow this guy. We're ready to see him overthrow Rome. We're behind this. Come on, we've seen all the miracles. And yet what they didn't understand that the disciples did. And this is where it's so important that we know we're not just part of the crowd, but that we have made a decision to be a disciple because a disciple understands something about who he is not just what he will do for me. See, the whole crowd was caught up in what Jesus was going to do for them. At least the disciples. I mean, they still had a long way to go. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, they're, they're still quite confused come Easter Saturday morning when Jesus is in the grave and they're like, what the heck just happened? They, they still had some mindsets where they still expected him to, to, to overthrow Rome. I mean, Peter takes a sword to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. He's ready to take the battle, right? Like, he starts swinging. He's like, this is my moment. I'm on the front line of the battle. I'm going to be written in the annals of history. I was next to, the, I was next to Jesus as he took on the Romans. Then Jesus picks up the ear and, like, puts it back on. And Peter's like, just going the wrong way. You should be taking other pieces of the body off, you know? Like, hack some more. And Jesus is like, it's not, it's not that type of takeover, Peter. The problem for us is when we get, when we get caught up in our, our expectations of what Jesus is going to do for us, we will turn a, a triumphant entry. We, 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 we will turn what could be a triumph and we will, we will suddenly see it as a tragedy. This is exactly what happened to the, the crowd. They went from, from triumph, they went from this triumphant entry, they went from Palm Sunday to, to Good Friday in less than a week. It took six days for them to realize their expectations weren't going to be met. It took six days for them to realize that Jesus is spending most of his time in a room with 12 guys, breaking bread, having a little meaningful conversation. It took, it took them six days to go from you're our king to crucify him. Same crowd. Six days. I wonder what happens to you when your expectations 
of what Jesus is going to do for you don't materialize? How long does it take for you to go from here's the triumph to here's a tragedy? I know for me personally, I've got some other little statements here. Coronation turns criminal. I liked that one. I mean, they were ready to force him, force the crown on his head, you know, and then the next second they're, they're wondering why he's been arrested in the garden and taken away. What happens? Let's skip some of these. Here we go. How do you process disappointment when he doesn't do what you want, how you want, or when you want? And see, if we're not careful, unprocessed disappointment is a door to bitterness. And bitterness allowed to fester always causes crucifixion. Maybe you're not ready to crucify Jesus again on the cross, but you might be willing to crucify your, your faith. Throw it away. I remember a time in my life where I wasn't walking uh, with God at all. Um, and I, I showed up at a, at a church gathering. And I listened, sat, and I listened, I listened to the message. And then afterwards, I went up to someone. And I didn't realize, but what, what I had going on inside of me was, was this festering disappointment around expectations that because of scripture I'd put on myself. And I, I remember arguing with this lovely guy, honestly, poor guy, because he wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And my response to him was, why would I ever follow someone who sets a standard that I can never reach? What kind of person puts a standard of perfection knowing I can never reach it but expect me to try? I said, I don't want to be a part of that. I want nothing to do with that. What, like I'm supposed to buy into guaranteed failure? I don't want that. And this was my argument back to him about Christianity. Because to me, it was like guaranteed, I can never meet the mark, so why try? Why buy into that? Because what I, what I never understood was grace, right? I never understood the fact that I didn't have to meet the mark because Jesus had died so that, so that my sin, he who knew no sin, became sin so that I might become his righteousness. It wasn't about me trying, it was about me surrendering. It was about me giving up and receiving what he had done for me. I never understood grace because I had a festering wound of legalism. I'd grown up, and this isn't at all, you know, to say that the church I grew up in did anything wrong, but my faulty framework yep. caused a perception to be placed over Scripture that all I read was that I needed to try harder, yep. do more, and that, and that I was never good enough, and I would never meet the mark, yep. but I never, ever understood grace. Yep. And so that... That faulty perception caused really damaging expectations just of myself, yet alone of Christianity, yet alone of how Jesus worked in my life, right? I thought I had to measure up. I thought I had to hit perfection. I thought, I, I thought that was the goal in Christianity, was to meet the mark. 
And I was like, I'm out. Not only am I out, I'm going to argue against how, how stupid this thing is. I feel sorry for that guy, like, so often. I'm like, oh, that poor guy, he had no idea what he was engaging with. A broken, bitter, twisted soul that had never experienced grace. And you know, Scripture actually tells us that it is a root of bitterness that chokes off grace. That when we allow ourselves to get disappointed and open door and let, and let bitterness in, it actually chokes off our capacity not just to receive but also to give grace. And I wonder how often we lay unhealthy perceptions over Scripture where we see that Jesus heals. And so we expect Him to do it when we want, how we want, in the way we want. And when He doesn't, there's that wound. There's that disappointment. Or we see God provide and we come to church and, and our faulty framework meets with, with the expectation we lay over what, what pastors and, and leaders say and, and we're encouraged that God provides and so we're expecting him to actually give us what we want, when we want, how we want we'll, and then we don't get the job that we want and we thought he was going to give for us and then we're like, well, now we have an expectation gap because we expected Jesus to be genie and give me what I want, when I want, how I want, in the way I want. And we realize that actually, that when we perceive Jesus as genie God, as actually an incredibly selfish expectation and perception on Christ. And it's actually no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The whole idea of I and me wanting what I want, when I want, how I want, that's the whole thing that is supposed to be crucified in me when I lay down my life and receive Christ. Now it's no longer what I want, it's what He wants. There's no longer when I want it, it's, it's submission to His timeline, it's submission to His kingdom being produced in me and through me. And so now it's not I want this, when I want it, how I want it, it's God. God, work through me to do your will in this world as I live and breathe. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ in me. And I have seen too many people go down a very similar path to me where their expectations weren't met by the Jesus who they thought was going to give them what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. And when he didn't, they crucified their faith. And this Sunday, is a, it is a celebration. It is a celebration because he, Jesus is the king. They didn't get that wrong. And this is part of the, the, the intertwined nature of faulty expectations and, and faulty frameworks is that it's not all wrong, right? Like Jesus was the king, just not how they expected. Because they were all about what he would do, not who he was when we are able to shift away from Jesus is my king because of what he can do to Jesus is my king because I see who he is, we lay down our life in a different way because we realize he really is king of kings and Lord of lords. We realize that he is king of all. He is supreme over all creation. And suddenly in the context of understanding the true scope of his kingship, my selfish desires, they they dwindle into insignificance. <clears throat> I've written on here, so what? So what? 
crowd only wanted to get from Jesus. So when they didn't get their desires, they got dirty. You see, but the disciples were taught not to define an end, but to trust him who is the end. This could sound a little bit controversial. I 120,000%. That's controversial right there. I believe Jesus can, does, and that his will is to heal. But I also know that if I don't allow death to be a reality of the journey we go on between temporary and eternal, then I have removed a significant component out of the realities in which Jesus, the eternal God, exists. And so if I don't allow for that to be a part of my expectation of when and how and if and what his healing might look like, that it might include passing through the door that exists between temporary and eternal, then I'm going to have a faulty expectation around his healing. And I'm going to get disappointed when that one time comes where he chooses that his healing will be expressed through the passing from this life to the next. If eternity is not a part of my framework, then I will always struggle with the moment that it seems as though my prayer for healing hasn't been answered, when in fact it has. You see, we all have a faulty framework of temporal living because we are born into this world. We don't realize we're supposed to take the idea of eternity and bring it in to our framework so that so much of the, the story of Jesus makes sense to us. Without eternity, we actually lose a massive amount of value. Without eternity, we limit Christ, who is eternal, to doing things in our time, in my life. See how it shifts back to me and my and I. I don't understand why he chooses to do what he does when he does, but I've determined that that's not going to be why I trust him as king. You see, he declares that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So for me, he is my end. Do I pray for him to do certain things? Absolutely. But I've determined that knowing him and trusting him is more important than any outcome from him. And so Jesus, who knows the beginning from the end, desires disciples who will trust his kingship even when he's hanging on a cross. And we're, we're put with a question this week. Because by the time we get to Easter Sunday, the cross has happened. But the cross, for, for lack of a Christian cliche, the cross is a real crossroads, right? It's a real point. Thanks, babe. Yeah. The cross is a real, it's a real crossroad for the shift between crowd and disciple. 
Because can you trust a king that is dying on a cross to still be king? Or is his death on a cross the very thing that negates his kingship? That was what separated the crowd and the disciples. Because even though the disciples didn't understand what was happening and where things were going, they still believed in who he was. Even though he's hanging on a cross. And they come to a, a crossroad. And for all of us, it's a crossroad all the time. When things in life don't line up with what we expect to happen because we're walking with Jesus. And we have to come back to the cross. Can I trust a king hanging on a cross? Can I trust a king who is willing to lay down his life? And I would put to you that actually that's the only king you can trust is the one who is actually willing to lay down his life completely for you. The only one we can truly trust is the one who is willing to go all the way for us, to take all of our sin on himself, to live this life, to give up his entire divine existence, to come to earth and to live as a human for the sole purpose of going to the cross so that you and I might be able to spend eternity with him. He is the only one you can trust. No other king on earth has done what he's done for us. No other king in the entire history of history of history has done what Jesus did because no other king has come from the eternal into the temporary so that those of us who exist in the temporary can go and spend eternity with him. So my question for you this morning is, can you trust him to be doing what's best for you even when it's not what you want? how you want or when you want. Because that was what the king on the cross was doing. It wasn't what the disciples wanted. It wasn't when they wanted. And it wasn't how they wanted him to step into his divinity. But actually, that's exactly what he needed to do. And the fact that he went on the cross means that he is always willing to do what he knows is best even when it is totally different to what we think he should do for us or he should do uh, his timing in our lives. That picture of Jesus entering on a donkey to be declared king, landing on a cross, tells you that he is always willing to do what's best. Always. He is a king who is faithful and trustworthy. Even when we don't understand. And sometimes that's the biggest stumbling block for us. Is because we like to think in our own sense of self-righteousness or self-significance that we should be able to understand everything about this life and him and eternity. And the truth is, we just won't. And we just can't. So you can either choose to pursue understanding and try to define everything and put everything in a box which will cause you to have a faulty expectation and a faulty perception of how Jesus works, when he works, and how he works in your life. Or you can choose that actually he is the cornerstone of everything I believe. 
He is the one that rewrites my framework. He is the first thing that I position in my thinking. And everything else surrenders to that, including my capacity to understand. And therefore, if I don't understand, that's okay because I know him. Even when I don't get what I want and I don't know why, I can submit that to the fact that, well, at least he is still walking with me. And he is faithful. And he is the king of this world. And even if tragedy comes, or even if suffering happens, or even if the things that I thought were going to happen in this life don't happen in this life, and they go the exact opposite way. Even if I thought that that marriage, which was going to be fantastic, has ended up in divorce, or even if that health that I thought was going to do me for the rest of my life finishes early, I can still trust that he is king. And that is the story of Palm Sunday, that he is king. He truly is king. And we don't get to tell him how that looks. We just get to celebrate that reality. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming messages. We would love for you to connect with us by heading to c3victory.org.au.